This is Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Kittler. And this is episode 43 in our series for 2014. And today's date is Friday the 7th of November. And Leon, what's on the plate for this week? Well, Gary, we have a fascinating interview with a guy called Joe Caprio. He's a sales director from a Boston-based firm, Insight Squared. And uh, they, they are in the business of business analytics. So we're going to be talking to them all about business analytics and getting to know customers all the way from Boston. It's a great interview. And then we're going to have a chat with economist Stephen Kukulis. He's going to be talking to us all about the impact of the falling oil price and what that's a sign of. Good. And after that, we'll have the news and tell you what's going on. But first of all, let's talk to Joe Caprio. And we should notice that we spoke to him on Skype and it was a little bit flaky, but the sound's a little tinny perhaps. Uh, We apologise for that, but he's very clear on what he means. Absolutely. Joe Caprio, Insight Squared provides a powerfully simple sales source analytics uh, to help organisations grow their numbers in internal sales teams. Uh, Tell us about it. How does it work? Sure. So we're a venture-backed startup software company. We're located in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which we think is the Silicon Valley of the East. We were invested in by Salesforce.com to connect directly to a CRM or a call center and provide out-of-the-box analytics around call-to-connect ratios, about pipeline growth, and other leading indicators for for actual sales growth. Um, Our focus is on, on outbound telesales, marketing to sales handoffs, and then general sales execution from uh, opportunity on down. Now, I believe uh, you've got some pretty cool research uh, telling us uh, whether there are better and worse days for um, or times for sales teams to make cold calls. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So the interesting thing about our product is that um, we connect to people's CRMs and, and telephony systems, and you know it's it's totally secure. But we can do benchmark data. We can also test our own data. So we're heavy into the concept of tracking and metrics and A/B testing. And what we've done is a study around time of day and, and day of the week for outbound telesales. We, I mean, we can share some of the results, or we can talk about the experiment. Where do you guys want to go? Well, tell us first of all. Tell us first of all about the experiment itself, and then we can talk about the result. Sure. So, I mean, our our concept here obviously is, is easy for us to say this because we're we're a BI, we're business intelligence, and our focus is on growth mode um, metrics, especially for for SaaS and technology and other high growth industries. So, it's easy for us to to say you should do this because it's what our software does. But basically, our our concept is that you should track everything. You should know your numbers. How many calls does it take to get a connected uh, sales call? How many connects do you need to create a meeting or a sales opportunity? And then how many of those opportunities will, will go through and become deals? So know your funnel all the way down. Calls, connects, meetings, deals. And then A-B test and, and iterate to find the fastest path to success. So time of day, lead source, you know, buyer's title, the pitch that you use. Uh, make a thousand phone calls in, in uh, method A, make a thousand phone calls in method B, and test the throughputs of, of both, and then use the one that works better and abandon the one that doesn't work. So that, that's the approach that we took. So straight analog, you, you know, you, it's a feet on the ground sort of thing. Uh, this works, that doesn't. Don't worry about uh, trying to push the, the non-working thing. Yeah, exactly. And you know, the best part is, is this kind of happens in all sales teams. Um, 
But unfortunately, more often than not, it, it's pretty anecdotal or qualitative. You know, so if, if you just leave it to your, your sales reps to come back and report to you, hey, those new leads are no good. Or, or you know, I tried selling the, the, the higher priced model, but nobody's buying it. It's really, it's, you're really leaving a lot up to chance where what we think is let's collect the data, not from the salesperson, but from the CRM, and then let's actually do an analysis. So we, we've got some really smart people here from, from MIT. Uh, we've got some smart people from Harvard Business School that built our software. And so the metrics, the tests that we run, it, it, it's different than just asking a sales rep. Because, you know, and I came up in sales, so I'm not, I don't think I'm, I'm talking out of school here, but I think if you ask a rep, they're probably going to gravitate towards the easier calls. And, you know, maybe we should let the data bear out and, and show you where the wins are. So what did your research find? Well, one thing, for example, is um, a lot of people want to get in during the day, sales reps, I mean, get in during the day and kind of ease into it, start to make a lot of dials around like 10 or 11, break for lunch, you know, kind of meander around the afternoon and then hammer their dials between, you know, like 4.30 and 5.15. So you might find like the highest volume for calls is between 4 and 5 o'clock especially if you're tasking your, your telesales team with a certain number of dials per day. But what we found is the most productive time of day to call was between 8 and 9 a.m., um, which is really not what most telesales reps want to do. And so we found that the highest ratio for calls to connected calls, so how many dials does it take me to get somebody on the phone, the best and the most successful ratio was between 8 and 9 a.m., 8, 9 a.m. would be before people are in the office, though. Uh, so you're calling home. How, how does that work? That'd be at breakfast or, or oh, maybe no, leaving? Yeah. <laughs> That's a great... Thank you. Um, so, no, we're entirely B2B. We're not B2C. So we're, we're oh, calling okay. businesses. We're calling business lines. We're not calling cell phones. The funniest part is we're calling CXOs or, or, or vice president-level people. And the concept is that the American working day starts at 9 a.m., but the reality is people in a position of power, uh, they're in the office at 7.38 in the morning. Right. So you think calling before 9 a.m. is a mistake, but... In reality, they're at their desk, and they don't have a meeting on the books, so they answer the phone. And what happens is if you wait until after 9 o'clock, that's when they're swept away and they're in their meetings. So by calling between 8 and 9, but calling at their office, calling at their desk, you might get past the gatekeeper because she's not in the, in the office yet. You might actually get a connect. That's what we found. After you call at 9, if you call at 9 o'clock onwards, chances are they'll be in a meeting, and uh, that meeting could last for hours. Right, or they go from one meeting to another. And also the dragon at the front desk is, is guarding them after nine. <laughs> Your words, but yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so what we did is we actually started to set up lead queues based on based on geography. So, you know, East Coast, we'd, we'd call from eight to nine, and then, and then Central Time in America, we'd call from nine to ten, because that's their eight to nine. Mountain, we'd call from, and, and you know, we'd move right on down the, the food chain. Right, right, right across the uh, time zones. So we're calling everybody at 8 a.m. So, but that that 8 a.m. works across all time zones. Yeah, exactly. So we actually we did test it out based on a few different factors, like the, the size of the account, the, the industry that they're in, uh, you know, their geography. And yeah, we didn't really see a statistical difference between the 8 to 9 a.m. time block for East Coast, West Coast, international. 8, 8 to 9 a.m. was the most successful block across all um, all uh, segments. Now, are there any other optimum times? 
Well, you know, we found that the bookends were kind of tough to the week. So Monday, Friday bore out a little less successful than, than Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And I, I think it's probably um, a factor of it was summer when we did the analysis. So Fridays are generally a little tougher. People want to get out of the office, uh, maybe working four-day weeks. And uh, Mondays are a little bit different because people kind of tend to front load their week in terms of meetings. So maybe if there is an 8 a.m. meeting, it's on Monday. So um, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday tended to work out better than Monday, Friday. But this is uh, changing the way sales teams work completely. It absolutely changed the way that we go to market. Uh, and, I mean, keep in mind we've got a very heavy uh, MQL, marketing qualified lead, to, to sales workflow here. So we've got a – I don't know if you guys are, are all that familiar, but, like, get found, sales 2.0, generate a lot of interest on inbound marketing, pass those interested leads to the telesales team, create opportunities, and pass that to the closing team. So for us, it's all about efficiencies. Like, we're not really outside sales. We're not feeding the street. This kind of analysis is really for other inside sales teams. And at that point, it's about effectiveness and efficiencies. So, yeah, we, we took the analysis to heart, and we, we've kind of made some changes to the way we go to market, and the results have been great. So the lessons for all sales teams around the world is make your calls from 8 a.m. to 9 a.m., and don't go in hard on Monday and Fridays. Take those as the slower days, and go in hard on Tuesday to Thursday. I mean, if they had to... I mean, yeah, you're right. If they had the same same results as us, but I, I think I think what I would really take away from this, it you know, in my next lifetime, I think what I would really do is put in a system where it's easy to track results and then pressure test because maybe the industry, maybe one of your listeners is in a different industry, and Monday Fridays are great for them, or or, or the afternoon is better than the morning. So I think the most important thing that we took away from this is let's track everything. Let's analyze the results in a quantitative way, not qualitative, and then let's let's get a theory and, and test it out. And then when we find that one method or one time or one approach is more productive than another, then let's just hammer that one. So the lesson for all sales teams and sales managers is to analyze the results carefully and see what works and doesn't work. Yeah, I fully agree. I think so. Yeah, I mean, and it also means that you need to know your market, don't you? You need to know who your customers are. It's no good talking to a dairy farm manager, for example, at uh, probably 9 o'clock because he's, he's been working since 5. But, you know, somebody in a desk at a um, technical company, 8 to 9 would be spot on. He'd probably been there since 7. That sort of thing. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Well, Joe, thank you very much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah, of course. Thanks again for having us. Yeah, good old Joe says get them early when they're fresh. That's right. That's right. Early in the morning is the best time. So now, uh, Stephen Kukoulis and all about oil prices. Stephen Kukoulis, the oil price is heading down. What does this mean? A couple of things are happening, I think, Leon. We've got disappointing news on the global economy, which means that demand for energy, demand for these raw materials, if you like, is depressing the price. The Eurozone's in, in dire straits, recession inevitable. China is slowing. In fact, a lot of the smart money now is talking about a sub-7% GDP pace for China, which is for them is very weak. Um, so you've got this world economy just being... You know, growing, but not that fast. Uh, thankfully, the US is doing pretty well. Uh, we've also got the scenario where the supply side's happening. You know, when commodity prices were at these very elevated levels uh, over the last few years, uh, what's happened, of course, is that 
uh, oil producers, energy producers, were, of course, trying to get the stuff out of the ground as fast as they can. They invested a lot. Their capacity went up, and now they're producing all of this stuff. So you've got a, an unfortunate uh, coincidence of uh, softening demand, but also rising supply. Economics works, price goes down. And, of course, America is now virtually self-sufficient with uh, shale oil, aren't they? Correct. The, the uh, freeing up, if you like, of the, uh, the fracking and shale oil production has meant that America's self-sufficient. So, in a sense, that's part of the supply side, if you like, that um, that self-sufficiency from the biggest oil consumer in the world, the US, means that uh, the Middle East are now starting to uh, think about scaling back their production just so that they can sort of put a floor under the price. Look, their cost of production of oil is, you know, in the tens or twenty dollars a barrel. So they're making still plenty of money. Don't don't worry about that. But um, what it means that they're just worried that if the price falls too much, that uh, continuing boost of their incomes uh, will be hit. And the Saudis have just come out uh, in recent times suggesting that they're going to be lowering their price expectations and they're going to be well, looking to lower their output as long as other producers do as well. What does that mean? I mean, for the consumer, it's obviously very good because it means cheap petrol prices. But what does that mean generally? If, if the global economy is not doing that well, what does that mean for commodity prices? Yeah, well, look, for the consumer first, great. We're going to be saving a few dollars, um, uh, potentially filling up the car each time. And at a time when yeah, consumer sentiment's still pretty soft, uh, that little bit of a boost could be, could be no bad thing. In fact, it's going to be good. However, like most things in economics, there's a, there's a, a an, an, on the other hand type, uh, concept. And for energy producers, and Australia is a net energy exporter, even though we're not, we, we import oil, obviously, and petrol, uh, we are an energy exporter. And the fact that the oil price has fallen so much and that there is some substitutability between oil, coal, gas, and these sorts of things, their prices are very weak too. So we've got this scenario where the oil price is dragging other energy type um, prices and for Australia who's heavily dependent on these sorts of uh, exports it's a concern and again we just saw in the most recent trade numbers while there are many things that impact on a monthly trade number you, you, you can sort of see some of this price pressure starting to impact on our trade deficit which you know, widened quite dramatically last month. Right, right, right and of course the trade deficit was a bit of a worry when the figures came out this week. Indeed. One of the things that had been helping our economy through this sort of um, post-GFC period where the world economy was looking to regain its feet, and we, we were doing okay, we were doing you know, quite well, uh, was our export sector. Yeah, we're exporting lots of volumes of stuff, and I think that's still continuing, but now we've got the situation where you know, iron ore prices, as another commodity example, are, are sub-80 US dollars a t- Kind of about 77, I think, uh, this morning as we speak. Um, and that's down from 120 US dollars a tonne just uh, 12 months ago. And, of course, figures well above that in the, at the peak of the boom. So, you know, while we're exporting huge volumes of iron ore, for example, the price we're getting for it's falling away very, very rapidly. That's impact, impacting on the trade balance. It's probably going to start to continue uh, to, to impact on our national income numbers, when we get the nominal GDP numbers for you know, the September quarter and December quarter this year, they're going to be weaker. So it's just another one of these things, a headwind against us you know, getting the economy going, getting to real GDP growth back above 3%. Uh, given that China's likely to slip back to 7% or perhaps lower, uh, given that the US economy is still not, not functioning at full, full bore and uh, the European economy seems to be heading nowhere, this oil price issue is not going to go away anytime soon. It's going to stay like that for some time. 
Indeed, I think the whole commodity cycle is going to be much the same. Oil and other commodities too. That um, you need a strong world economy. Yeah, when the world economy is growing, consumers are consuming. Uh, they're buying goods that inevitably have an energy component in them. You know, offices are, have got their lights on, factories are working. These sorts of things are happening in a strong economy. When the economies are subdued, unemployment remaining a little bit high, and as I think you touched on, the economies, even in the US, which is looking probably one of the best economies in the um, in the industrialised world at the moment, there's still a lot of spare capacity. Yeah, they've got um, they, they've got low inflation, and, and uh, the Fed's okay. They've ended their QE, but they're still, gosh, a long way away from. Uh, actually pulling the trigger on rate hikes. So zero interest rates in the US still tells me that their economy is still subdued. They still want to get some traction. Uh, so until that happens, I think you know, oil other com- and other commodity prices will remain very subdued. What does that mean for government finances? Oh, well, one of the lessons that we've all learned in our economics textbooks, and it's very, very true in the um, history of the GFC, the recent history there, is that Inflation is a very good way to fix government finances. Low inflation, or as we're starting to see in the Eurozone uh, countries, or some of them, deflation is poison. When you get low inflation or zero inflation, um, by definition, you're not going to collect any more um, GST-type tax because the prices of goods and services is unchanged. Wages growth is going to be near zero, so you're not going to collect any more income tax. Company profits are going to be flat because they're not charging any more, by definition, with low inflation, so you're not going to be collecting a whole lot of company tax. So, you know, the low inflation environment says to me anyway that the public finance debt concerns that many people have in the uh, in the global markets will persist for a little bit longer and that you really need not only a little bit of economic growth in real terms to help, but you need inflation to get back to that sort of 2% level, which um, uh, isn't really around for too many of these uh, major G7 type countries. So we're looking at a period of protracted deflation? Well, disinflation, as in persistent low inflation, is certainly the case. Well below just about every central bank's target. Uh, and if, while that's the case, you're going to see very easy monetary policy. Obviously, the ECB's taken steps to uh, try to inflate its economy. Gosh, the Bank of Japan just last week with its extraordinary um, uh, bout of quantitative easing where the Nikkei rallied you know, 6% in a couple of days and the yen continued to depreciate. This so was a Halloween announcement. Correct, the Halloween uh, stimulus, if you like. Um, so Japan's trying to do the right thing. Uh, so they're trying to get their s- stimulus going. The European Central Bank's trying to do it. And the Fed, of course, very, very cautious steps as they uh, end QE and move to a tightening phase. But th- there's no confidence about it. That's the curious thing, that there's, you know, bond yields are staggeringly low across uh, all the industrialised countries. And that's telling me that while there's a potential government debt problem, as we just touched on, uh, the market's concerned that inflation's um, too low, and while that's the case, these very, very low interest rates and bond yields will persist. Right, and of course, uh, what does that mean for the government coffers in terms of, I mean, the, the, I mean, the government's looking at a deficit, it's, uh, it's uh, struggling to get the budget into surplus, what does that mean? Yeah, look, well, for here, there's no question. Well, my EFO is only about a month away now, so the mid-year economic fiscal update from uh, Mr Hockey as Treasurer will probably show deficits increasing, partly because the economy is weaker and this low inflation is a critical issue there. Uh, But also, um, they've been a little bit, um, let's say, a little bit loose and easy with their spending decisions uh, on a couple of issues. But it's really the economy that matters most. You know, when you've got wages growth running at, 
2.5% when you've got the inflation rate running in the low twos, you're just not collecting the revenue uh, that you need to get towards a budget surplus. So I think you know, the curious thing will be, does Mr Hockey include in the mid-year economic update a number of policy measures designed to get the budget back towards balance sooner rather than later? And that's going to be the issue. But the risk is if he does that when the economy is a little bit subdued, the unemployment rate's creeping up, um, then, of course, you risk the economy being a bit weaker for a bit longer. And you sort of shoot yourself in the foot in terms of getting the budget back to, back to balance or back to surplus. And, uh, of course, the uh, low commodity prices will be hurting it as well. Oh, indeed. The, the, the last uh, budget back in May, so that's now, gosh, that's uh, six months ago now, uh, assumed um, iron ore prices above 100 US dollars a tonne. It assumed uh, coal prices about 10% higher than they are now. So if you just, in a very simple mechanical way, in your economic model, plug in these lower commodity prices, you've lost a couple of billion dollars per year from government revenue. So that alone forgetting everything else for the moment, is, is a couple of billion dollars a year uh, over the current financial year, but also the forward estimates. So if you include perhaps a slightly higher unemployment rate, slightly lower inflation, certainly lower wages growth, then all of a sudden the risk is that when we see the MyEFO numbers, the budget update in, in a month or so's time, each year will have a budget deficit that's somewhere approximately, back of the envelope, $5 billion a year worse than we saw at budget time. So the warning for the public is uh, while you can rejoice at having lower petrol prices, just be careful what you wish for. Indeed. Steady is better than sharp swings in these sorts of things. The oil price decline is more a concern about global growth than a reason to celebrate the fact that you're going to save a couple of dollars every time you fill up. Stephen Coolis, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Leon. Thank you. So what do you think about that, Leon? Well, as I said, it's it's not a good sign for the global economy when oil prices are like that, Gary. No, that's true, and uh, particularly the uh, results of the uh, elections in America. Well, yes, although Wall Street has soared on the result of the Republicans getting in, it's curious because unemployment is actually heading down in America. And uh... Yeah, the Amer- Americans, you know, look, they look like they're coming out of the doldrums at long last, and at the same time China's getting some problems. Oh, yes. Well, you know, the big news, of course, during the week, Gary, was that Chinese manufacturing slowed in October as the world's second biggest economy expanded at its weakest pace in five years. And China's official purchasing managing index, which is a measure of activity in the sector, came in at 508 Last month, that's lower than the 51.1 recorded in September. PMI tracks activity in China's factories and workshops, and it's a big watched indicator of the healthy economy. At the same time, activity in China's manufacturing sector has edged up to a three-month high of 50.4 compared to 50.2 in September, according to HSBC. But it's not a good sign. It's just not not great growth there. No, that's right, and and of course you've got problems in. Uh financing, shadow banking and all these other things underlying it all. That's right, that's right and and the real estate sector of course in China and the other big issue was uh, the Eurozone, activity there in the manufacturing sector picked up modestly in October but that's only because businesses cut their prices and that's an indication the currency area is unlikely to soon escape a period of low, very low inflation and there were surveys of about 1,000 manufacturing companies and they recorded weaknesses in many parts of the currency area, big declines in France, Italy, Greece and Austria and the headline measure from data market 
firm market's monthly survey of purchasing managers at manufacturers rose to 50.6 from 50.3, which is not good at all. At the same time, the US trade gap widened in September because export posted the biggest drop since February, and that's a sign of weaker demand for American-made goods. And that actually underscores concern, I think, about the global growth slowdown, Gary. There's still a lack of confidence everywhere. It's a hangover of the GFC, isn't it? Yeah, well, the US trade deficit rose 7.6% to a season-adjusted $43.03 billion in September. And that's up from the $39.9 billion. Uh, according to the previous month. At the same time, though, there's some interesting stuff happening in Australia, Gary. China's fourth largest property developer, Country Bar Garden, could soon emerge as a buyer of Australia's biggest apartment building, Meriton. And billionaire Harry Chigaboff, who's 82, he revealed he was in talks with an unnamed Chinese developer to sell the company he founded 50 years ago. And the asking price? $10 billion. He was going to sell about, I think, about half of it, and he suddenly decided to let the whole thing, whole lot be on them. They will pay. They will pay that sort of money. Now, the Commonwealth Bank has enlisted three high-profile law firms to provide free advice to thousands of customers seeking compensation for dodgy advice doled out by its financial planning arm. And so Morris Blackburn, Shine Loyals and Slater and Gordon have been bought on as a no-cost option for clients seeking independent assessments of compensation claims against the Commonwealth and its scandal-ridden financial planning arms. And now this establishment of a panel of law firms forms the final piece of CBA's open advice review set up in September, set up in July, sorry, after a Senate inquiry found that the financial planning arm drained the savings of thousands of its customers by putting low-risk clients into high-risk investments. And a scathing report accused the bank of playing down the rorts in the financial planning arms to avoid the corporate regulator's scrutiny and limit compensation. And at the same time, Commonwealth Bank Chief Executive Ian Narab has offered to testify at a Senate inquiry into the bank's financial advice scandal. And the Senate Economics References Committee has been contacted with an offer from Mr Narab to appear during the coming months. That's going to be very interesting, yeah. Yeah, some interesting profits, though, too. Um, uh, Westpac announced cash earnings of $7.6 billion for the year to September. That's up 8%. CBA has delivered cash earnings of $2.3 billion, an increase of the $2.1 billion in the previous corresponding quarter. And this bodes well for CBA, which is Australia's biggest home lender, as it looks to surpass last year's annual record of uh, $8.8 billion. Uh, and in the 14 weeks of October, uh, Woolworths total sales was $16.1 billion. That's up 3%. And that excludes petrol. First quarter sales were $14.3 billion, which is up 4.1%. So a bit of a turnaround for Woolies because they were trailing coals, weren't they? Some interesting stuff, some good signs. This year's gradually improving business outlooks looks set to continue in 2015. Dun & Bradstreet's Business Expectations Survey, that reveals 53.2% expect increased sales in the first quarter of 2015 compared to last year. The response has lifted DMB's sales expectations index to 45.8 points. That's up, up from 27.5 points last year. And that's the highest level, Gary, since the second quarter of 2000 in, in four, 14 years. And that's quite extraordinary. And at the same time, consumer confidence has stayed steady at relatively high levels uh, going into the Christmas period. That's reassuring for retailers. And the ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index was underchanged last week, following a 2.7% jump the previous week, which brought the four-week average to its highest level since before the federal budget. And the other interesting thing, and uh, people are raving about this, but I think it's a bit of a worry. Retail sales went up 1.2% to $23.6 billion. Everyone's raving about it. But, Gary, when you actually look at the data, 
They're only bored because they release of the iPhone 6. Absolutely, that's right. Yeah. And what you've got to remember is that the sales of the iPhone 6 were on the back of the cost of importing them. That explains why Australia's trade deficit widened more, to September, more than expected in September, according to official data. And according to figures from the ABS, the nation's trade deficit widened a season adjusted 123% to $2.26 billion. Exports rose only 1% in the month. Imports were up 6%. And I think the iPhone 6 had something to do with that, Gary. Yeah, well, it just goes to show that Australia continues to be per capita the best iPhone market in the world. Well, yes, but also on the worrying side, Australia labour market is weaker than previously reported. Um, according to revision from the ABS, the total number of Australians employed in September was 24,400 fewer than previously reported. And the jobless rate was 6.2% compared with 6.1%. Still, the number of job advertisements has risen for the fifth consecutive month. Job ads on the internet and newspapers rose 0.2% in October, up 7.5% for the year, according to figures from the ANZ. The performance of Australia's manufacturing sector improved, but remains in contractionary territory. The Australian Industry Group Performance of Manufacturing Index lifted 2.9 points in the month to 49.4. And that follows a fall of 0.8 points in September, which dragged the PMI reading down to 46.5. So um, it's still below 50, and anything below 50 shows it's uh, contracting, Gary. Building approvals also fell by 11% in September, missing market expectations to be 13.4% lower over the year. And a brief second wind during which trend approvals uh, stabilise appears though building approvals will commence their steady decline over the remainder of the year. Approvals in September were at their lowest level since August last year. And at the same time, Gary, the iron ore price has sunk to a new five-year low because worries about the Chinese economy are continuing to weigh on the commodity prices. And it's now trading at about $77 a tonne. Which means that some of the miners are going to be uh, underwater. Production costs will be much higher. Well, this is uh, the deepest trough since September 2009. Overall, iron ore has lost over 40% in 2014, with the first three quarters of the year each seeing double-digit performance percentage declines as big producers ramp up supply at a time when Chinese demand growth is stalling. And by ramping up the supply, digging more out faster, of course, we're shortening the time that the mines will uh, last. That's right. And, um, and the final bit of news, Gary, is that Gina Reinhardt has resigned as a director of the 10 Network and she'll be replaced by her alternate director, John Klepek. And that has ignited more speculation about a Fairfax 10 merger. Now, Reinhardt believes this combination of free-to-air network and newspaper publisher will create the scale needed to compete in a disruptive media sector challenged by overseas entrants and audience fragmentation. Now, Reinhardt is Fairfax's biggest shareholder and she owns 14.99% of the newspaper publishers and she also owns 10% of 10 but any any deal between 10 and Fairfax is predicated on them being able to sell their radio interest. Which could complicate things. And uh, meanwhile, there's been speculation that uh, the Discovery Channel and Foxtel could bid for 10. Well, that, that's a possibility. And of course, Discovery has got an enormous amount of content. So it'll be a case of watch this space. And that's it for now, Gary. Good, Leon, and uh, we'll be back next week. That's right. Next week, we've got a great interview with Joe Canatelli from JC Fine Foods. And uh, that's a fascinating interview. And uh, so we're looking forward to that. And in the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBizZ or on Facebook. Until then, stay safe and we'll be back next week.